Welcome to Mint, a unique look into how the creators of today are building the communities of tomorrow by harnessing the power of Web3. I'm your host, Adam Levy, and let's kick off this episode by giving some love to our three NFT sponsors. They are Coinvise, Poop, and Social Stack. First off, on Coinvise, you can create a personal or community-owned social token on Ethereum. Coinvise also helps you create incentives through token rewards and bounties, NFT business models, and bot integrations for Discord. Discover more by visiting coinvise.co today. Next up, we have Poop, or short for Proof of Attendance Protocol, who enables a novel way of creating one's life diary. Leveraging NFT technology, Poop facilitates an easy way to mint non-fungible tokens related to meaningful events. It's frequently used in crypto-native communities, and now it's starting to create NFT collectors in the mainstream too. Collect or launch your own POAP today by visiting poap.xyz. Next up, we have Social Stack, a platform for communities, brands, and creators to build mission-driven social token economies, offering an easy-to-use non-custodial wallet with a suite of open-source community engagement tools. Social Stack makes it simple to bring your community into Web3 and be a part of creating an open-source, gratitude-driven future for social tokens. Create a free social token wallet, discover mission-driven social token communities, or apply to launch your own token on Social Stack by visiting socialstack.co today. This episode welcomes the founder and CEO of Poop, Patricio Worthhalter. I genuinely consider him one of the top five best crypto founders in the space. He's such a visionary, hardworking individual. And if you ever see him at conferences, he's always the best dressed one with his orange blazer, his Poop pin, and all the fun things and energy kind of surrounding him. Uh, and if you're not aware of Poop, for short, uh, it's a cornerstone crypto consumer protocol. Uh, it helps me power Mint and provide you guys with listener badges to kind of prove your your participation and involvement in the season. Uh, and he's been an early supporter of Mint since day zero, sponsoring the podcast, helping me out, and uh, kind of bringing Mint to life. You know, but despite him sponsoring, despite their support, I would have otherwise had Patricio on considering how much of a visionary and forward thinking person he is in the space. So without further ado, in this episode, we discuss his early days as an aspiring tech entrepreneur, his journey into crypto, why growing up in Argentina was so pivotal for his understanding of crypto, the story and birth of Poop, how creators can use Poop to grow their community, why he publicly and spontaneously built bid $10 million on a punk, his vision for Poop, his number one failure in learning lesson while building Poop, and so much more. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. Patricio, welcome to Mint, my friend. Thank you so much for being on. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm happy to be here finally. I know. We, we've been going back and forth, but I must start okay, with, with saying the following. You've been one of my biggest supporters since day one, since day zero of Mint. You understood the vision. You saw what I was trying to do. You've, you've joined and, and supported for months and months and months on hand. So it's an honor to have you on. Thank you for making time. Thank you for being on. I'm excited to showcase your story and kind of put more of a spotlight on Paul because you guys are killing it. Uh, so let's just dive right in. Okay. Who are you? What do the people need to know about you? But more specifically, what were you like before crypto? Um. I'm Patricio Worthalter. Um, I am from Buenos Aires, Argentina. Um, Buenos Aires is the capital city of Argentina, which is a quite relevant country 
in the industry. Um, I've been a tech person for most of my life. Like you can trace back memories of myself uh, being five years old, playing with the screwdrivers, uh, disassembling things and trying to understand how they work. So, so I am clearly a tech person. Um, I can't tell exactly why I became a tech person because in my household, nobody was too technical. Like my father is a high school teacher and my mother is a therapist, so no tech in my family. But I clearly became a tech person. And when I was 17 or so, I dropped high school um, because I was so passionate about tech that I wanted to have a job in tech and make my own money and, and be on that adventure. It's like for me, work, it's never been work. I mean, it's been work uh, and, and there were uh, unfortunate times where I had to work very hard a lot for peanuts. Uh, but in general, if you ask who you are, it's clear that I'm a tech person that's been extremely passionate about everything tech. And after a very long journey, eventually I got into crypto. So, so I guess Amazing. this is a, a good answer. So, so what was your first tech job? What was that? Uh, well, I've done plenty of things. Um, <laughs> I'm not too proud, but it is what I could do. Okay. Um, I learned about, uh, I mean, I eventually I became a computer technician, but okay. what I'm not proud is that maybe the first five years before becoming a computer technician, I was like a computer technician apprentice and I had used the computers of everyone in my neighborhood, in my, in, in my social circles to learn. And, and that also, I think it's part of, of the buildups of my personality, how I come to be the way I am. It's like in Argentina, it is a very typical thing that you are on your own. Mm. Uh, there's very little um, support from anyone. You're, if you are the typical average uh, middle class uh, a person in the years, in the decade I grew up, I grew up in the 90s, you were on your own. So I was on my own and I had to find a way out and, and there was little to no support. Um, so I started learning about computers, um, practicing um, the idea and it wasn't like these days where you go online and you find a video and you, you can access perfectly condensed education on the subject you want. For me, it was like going into a jungle with a machete and having to open my way. And it felt like that. And although it may sound fun, it was somewhat tragic too. Um, things that I could have learned in not too long um, took me years. When I was 17, 18, I started a business uh, which was fixing computers at a slightly more professional scale. And I started hiring and having better customers. Mm -hmm. And for the first six years, we didn't make any money. We barely paid the bills. And the business was poorly structured and, and everything was a mess. And ultimately, when that business was 10 or 12 years old, so I started it when I was 17. Mm -hmm. And let's say when I was 27, it was 10 years old. I eventually had to kind of wind it down because it was impossible to make sustainable. And if I ask myself, why couldn't that company go better? Because when it was 10 years old, it had already like 20 employees and good revenue and it was doing well. It's because the foundations were so weak 
everything was so poorly planned that it couldn't even be recovered. So mm. in a way, my upbringing was a huge adventure uh, closely related to business, to tech, and some lessons were really expensive. Like it, yeah. It's like when, when you talk to someone on investment banking and maybe they have a successful career as PCs or something, but they tell you, well, I have been in investment banking for 20 years and maybe you ask, and was it worth it? And I am like, I don't know about investment bankers, but I say, I'm not sure it was worthy. Um, for me, they were almost 15 years where I had to work extremely hard and I barely got anything out of it besides a huge body of experience. Mm, interesting. So how did that lead you into crypto? Like, how did that lead into your excitement for not only what you're doing now, but your journey and first step into, into the world of Web3, into the world of crypto? Yeah, it and, happened and because of an accident. Um, okay. this, is, this is a known story. Um, I, I've been asked many times how I got into crypto. Also because my journey into crypto has been so crazy that people want to know how it happened. Right. So it is, it is mainly an accident. So we had this company that had 20 employees and we were every day fixing servers and computers of different companies in Argentina. And one of these companies that we were under contract uh, has a computer of them like a server um, infected one by one of these ransomware viruses that encrypts your data and you have to pay them with Bitcoin or Monero so you get your data back. And it wasn't a server of our contract. Uh, that was good. It was someone else's responsibility. <laughs> um, but they call us and, and we get the thing and we are like, yeah, we won't be able to decrypt this thing without paying. Let's see how it takes to pay the ransom and get the data back. So I see they wanted like 11 Bitcoin, and this was $3,000 or so. Wow. And I go to the Bitcoin embassy. Argentina had a Bitcoin embassy because at that time we had very strong uh, financial controls. You couldn't buy foreign currency pretty much. It was impossible. If you were a citizen in Argentina and you wanted to buy dollars, you couldn't. But you could buy Bitcoin. Um, so I, I go to the Bitcoin embassy. They were really welcoming. Um, of course, because I was in that time, figured that this is like 2013 or 14, approximately, and Bitcoin wasn't an established thing like it is today. Every time Bitcoin made headlines at that time, it was something that had everyone talking about it because mm -hmm. it's like adoption is coming. So every person that went to the Bitcoin embassy wanting to buy Bitcoin was given King's treatment. Could you imagine like, mm -hmm. like all, the, all the local Bitcoiners were extremely excited about mm -hmm. onboarding you into Bitcoin. They onboard me into Bitcoin and I love it. <laughs> like the whole experience, the idea. I have heard of Bitcoin before, but I'm so busy running the business. And I started buying as much Bitcoin as I can, which wasn't much Bitcoin. Maybe it was 10 Bitcoin, 20 Bitcoin, which was like, like every, every disposable income that I had that I wasn't using for my lifestyle, which was pretty humble, I started using for buying Bitcoin. Wow. And it was, it was incrementally interesting. It has this thing, I'm sure it has happened to you and I'm sure almost every guest. When you get to know cryptocurrencies and you get it, it changes your life. It, it, there's no way back. You know, you, you, you talk about your journey. You know, I came across Bitcoin in 2014, initially in high school. I, I was taking an investments course and we were learning about stocks and mutual funds and all these things. And my, my, my teacher, he was like an ex Charles Schwab, uh, broker. Okay. And he hated, he like, 
he made his money, I guess. And then he was over it. And then he got into real estate. He's like, I just want to teach. So all he did was teach us about finance. And I remember we had an entire week about Bitcoin. And I was an idiot. I didn't like pay attention to it as a high schooler. I was like, what is this like internet funny money? Like I didn't even think twice about it. It was only until like a few years later when I got into college and I was like, okay, there's something over here. Why the hell is a publicly traded asset at 20K? What is this underlying technology that could be used for much more than just uh, speculative trading on, uh, on the market, et cetera, et cetera. So I think everybody's introduction to crypto is super unique, including yours. And I love your point of view of like buying incremental amounts because I think that's the way. You know, like even even at the time, I feel like people were also thinking it's already at eleven dollars. Like, what is eleven? It was it's at hundred dollars. Like, isn't it too high to buy something like that? You know, people still have that type of mentality. I, I'm sure it was like that back then as well. No, um, it, it goes even worse. Um, so I mentioned the Bitcoin embassy, but before going into that, let me say something that you haven't mentioned, and it's quite important to point out the difference between an American person hearing of Bitcoin at school and an Argentinian person. For yeah. us. When we got to know about Bitcoin, it was immediate utility because it was useful for doing something that you wanted to do and you couldn't do otherwise mm. buying foreign currency. So it makes sense that for us, it was like a strike. It was a solution for the problem we had. For you, it was a funny concept that maybe you wanted to explore or not. <laughs> um, and this is one of the reasons uh, Argentina has such a large footprint in the global crypto community, because for us, it was something we needed. Yeah. Uh, regarding yeah, the, the price and, and, and the incremental uh, purchases, um, we have that you need bias. We believe because the fundamentals are so hard to understand. When you are new, it's impossible that you get all the fundamentals right. And the market behaves so whimsically that how much is too much? How low is too low? Um, and one fun story. I go back to the Bitcoin embassy a couple years after the first time I go. I became a regular. They were putting meetups every week. And I had to stop going because I got tired of them making fun of me for having bought Ether at $2. Wow. Like I became a meme because it's like, here's the idiot that bought Ether at $2 and now it's 70 cents. It's been like that for like six months. Wow. They were all like, like, Making fun of me became a thing. Wow. So what what was it about the Ether sale or Ethereum in general that resonated with you? Like, I didn't I, understand anything. I was completely You're just confused. like, fuck it. I'm just going to buy. Like, whatever. And, and, well, and I got some good advice. Um, okay. It, it was like that. But there was a guy that at that time was a complete nobody. Um, his name, maybe he was at your show uh, because now he's a leading voice in the creative economy. Uh, his name is Esteban Ordano. Okay, no, I haven't had him on. No, uh, not he's yet. the founder of Decentraland. Okay, uh, he was working at BitPay, and I, when I got into Bitcoin, I had a meeting with him. He was a friend of a friend because I wanted to understand more, and he was some sort of an expert, like he was mm -hmm. an expert. And he says something that was that was what made me buy Ether, like not understanding anything. He says, I, I, I say, I have Bitcoin. I'm loving this thing, and I see there are plenty of other assets. Is there something that you would say maybe I should buy? And he says, I'm not telling you to buy it, which is like a primitive version of non-financial advice, <laughs> but there is this thing, which is a new technology that had gotten all the most hardcore Bitcoin people attention, and many of them have migrated to it. And the technology is Ethereum. I'm not into it. I don't have it. I'm not buying it. 
I may not understand it too much, but there is a shelling point mm. around that asset. And I am like, yeah, let's get it. I, I have enough Bitcoin. And, and if this is so exciting, we need to get it. Um, I have his help getting my first Ether at $2. Mm. This is like 60 or 50 days after the mainnet of Ethereum had launched. Mm. And it was really hard. I like I tried to run the node and the wallet. And although I was a tech person, I failed and I never got the node running. So I ended up paying someone <laughs> for buying myself Ether. Then I learned uh, to use Poloniex, which was what we used to trade at the time. <laughs> okay. um, but uh, it, was, it was pretty much a reckless financial decision. Um, but also I was very shaded with my my prior computer and it's not my prior it was my at that time my current lifestyle mm. so i i kind of felt good buying a lottery ticket it, it was like i'm in a loophole i'm not being able to do what i want with my life i'm going to buy this thing that i don't understand and maybe it's a moonshot yeah and yeah. it was right. It was. It was a good bet. Uh, but like a lot of things that you do that you bet on, you're you're typically right. The advice that I've gotten from you, the help I've gotten from you, I don't know. You have this level of wisdom from being so early into tech and being so early into crypto. And I don't want to hype you up too much, but just like just like really put it, putting it out there. And I think it's super cool to hear your journey from like starting into tech, running this like somewhat failed business that wasn't generating revenue, but you were at it for years to come, making your way into crypto. But now we want to transition into POAP, okay? This is why you're here, okay? This is like the most, one of the most iconic projects in crypto. If you've been in crypto long enough, you for sure collected at least one of them. And if not, you've, you've either engaged in a scavenger hunt or you've seen them at conferences. What is POAP? What is it? And is it POAP? Is it Pope? Like, can we solidify this on the, on the show? What is, what is it? I call it POAP. Okay. But I'm fully respectful of however people want to mention and plenty say Pope. Like, like Vitalik keeps saying Pope. So as long as Vitalik wants to keep <laughs> saying Pope, we will allow people to, to okay. mention. But we Go say Pope because Pope works in multiple languages mm -hmm. and it's, it has a stronger identity. Like there's nothing else called Pope and, and Pope could be anything else like soap or poop or the Pope at the Vatican. Mm -hmm. While Pope, mm -hmm. it can only be Pope. Do you think there'll ever be a point where the Pope collects POAPs? For sure. Um, I don't think it's too far away, given that he's Argentinian. Right. I mean, I, I, I could get him a POAP without too much effort. <laughs> I love it. Okay, what is what is POAP? How do you explain it to someone that doesn't know it? Um, for someone who's not a tech, who's not a crypto person, but is a tech person, we say it's a checking-based social network. Uh, checking being the action of doing an interactive uh, activity on the metaverse once you are something. And that doing something could be going to a wedding, listening to a show, being online when something is happening at a Discord group. It's doing a check-in. It's like, I am here, I am stamping my participation in this collective activity, and I am getting a digital record out of it that it's tamper-proof, that's going to be in the blockchain forever, that it's indisputably authentic, and that will have perfect provenance, which is an NFT, right? It's not that we have invented right. NFTs, but it's like POAPs are much more than NFTs, but POAPs inherit all the qualities of NFTs. True. You get yep. it? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a really subtle, nuanced definition, but once you get it, 
it's much easier to understand the whole landscape. You know, you, you think about it because if we look at like Facebook, okay, we look at uh, Yelp, okay, we look at their automatic check-in features that people already inherently do. This is just like the next step into it, but like on a much bigger level. This and is literally- you own them. And you own because them. Because every check-in you do these days, you don't know them. Something people have learned the bad way was with Foursquare. Um, Foursquare was a huge thing in my communities in Argentina. There were people that had thousands of check-ins. And when Foursquare decided to pivot their business to data weaponization, all the collecting, checking thing activities got like, like almost shut down. And somehow people understood that they weren't the owners of their checkings. These days, like we are in 2021, I think every millennial and, and younger, of course, but let's say the millennial generation has learned that you cannot trust big tech with your data. Big tech is going to let you down. You may have had a website in Shio cities and you lost it because it got acquired by Yahoo and eventually it was gone. You may have had a Flickr account and again, it got acquired by Yahoo or maybe you used MSN Messenger and it got acquired by Microsoft. Well, it was Microsoft. And maybe you had ICQ and got acquired by mm -hmm. American Online and you lost it. You cannot trust big tech. If your digital assets aren't yours, they are someone else's. And sooner or later, they will, either, they will either monetize them, weaponize them, or just plain lose them. Mm. And mm. so the idea is that in POAP, your checkings belongs to you. They are NFTs that you hold on your wallet that use certain standards that the blockchain industry has, and that enable, enables unbound utility as, as every other NFT, because it's not just check-ins. The collection of check-ins becomes a representation of your persona, but you don't have to disclose any personal identifiable information of you. So, so I guess this is what POAP is. Yeah. You know, there's so many different ways to use POAPs beyond, beyond check-in, right? This beyond this level of representation. For example, on Mint, okay? One way that I've kind of growth hacked a newsletter, email subscription, uh, or just like contacts in crypto is by every single month, I issue listener badges as POAPs. And I have a landing page that says, claim your listener badge POAP, fill out your email, your Twitter handle, your first name and last name. And then I build a database of like crypto contacts and it's, I found it to be one of the most low key, but high growth ways to grow like a, a substantial email database. Right. And it's, it's a cool way because people like collecting this stuff. And it's interesting because like, when you think about it, like, what is it? It's just like, it's just a stamp. It's just a badge, right? It's, it's something that lives on chain that can verify that you did X, right? That you were at Y or where at whatever it may be. But actually, it's really fun, right? It, but, it, but it's not a little thing. You make it look like it's a little thing. But without POAP and without blockchains, how could you issue verifiable proofs of anything? You, you won't be calling a notary mm -hmm. for validating that someone has listened to a show. So the technology is actually disrupting. It's not just digital stickers. Mm -hmm. and, and this is why we started POAP, which is something that you somehow uh, low-key asked. And, and it's good to explain in this context. It's not that I had the dream of creating a social uh, checking-based social network. I didn't, or maybe I did, but that's another conversation. Um, with the founding team of POAP, what we wanted to do, what, what got us into build POAP, um, was that 
we wanted to shift. We wanted to shift the narrative of Ethereum's utility. The Ethereum network in 2018, when we started thinking about PowUp, didn't have any DAP. The only thing you could do with Ethereum was to buy Ether, to sell Ether, and to move tokens around of all sorts. And there were NFTs, but they were minimal. And nobody was using Ethereum for anything. MakerDAO hasn't launched, Aave haven't launched, Augur pretty much haven't launched. There were some experiments, but nobody that wasn't a hardcore crypto person was using crypto. And because of that, there were uh, vicious Bitcoiners and other influencers constantly bashing Ethereum, uh, trying to set up a, a, a trend about Ethereum not being useful for anything and being, if not a scam, a failed technology. And we were like, this is not a, fa a failed technology. This is arguably the most important technology being built these days. And we are like, how, how can we make this point clearer? How do we create a product that couldn't be created without this technology that people want to use? So we do a brainstorming session because we were a solution looking for a problem, which is something that all VCs would tell you that you don't have to be. Like if you're a solution looking for a problem, you don't have product market fit. <laughs> and they are kind of right. And, and that was the problem of Ethereum, actually. Ethereum didn't have product market fit. Then, then pop-up came. And, and you started having it. But on mm. um, the brainstorming session, we say, what do we know about Ethereum? What, what is the kind of things that you can only do with Ethereum? And we are like, okay, we have a decentralized database that nobody controls. You have censorship resistance. Um, you have immutability. You have uh, composability. Composability wasn't a thing as it is today. But it was obvious that once the data is on chain, you can compose it with different sources of data and create greater stuff. And then we say, what else does Ethereum do well? And it's like tokens. People love tokens. Mm -hmm. uh, so far, they aren't being too useful. But the idea of shared equity, uh, equity as in ownership, it's been fairly proven. We've seen the DAO and other products. Um, so shortly after, we come with the idea of doing this checking social network where the check-ins are NFTs, and we launch on December, and it immediately clicks. Like, they all get it. They all get it that this was something that could only be built on Ethereum or Ethereum-like technology that people actually wanted. People wanted to have these anchors on their memories. So they, I mean, they wanted to have these digital items so they could anchor them to memories. Mm -hmm. um, so I, yeah. I don't know why we came to this explanation, but no, it no, makes sense it's when I started. It's, it's super tied together. You know, one thing I want to ask you is because Mint is a lot about focusing on creators, right? How can creators build and own their communities using crypto primitives? Poop is one of the best ways to do it. It's helped uh, me bootstrap my community. Can you talk about like, what are some of the more creative ways you've seen creator communities use your tech and your system to kind of, own a community, build a community, and why is it important for them? Um, I would say if creators were to pick a single tool from a toolbox to grow their communities, crypto, not, not just PoAP, because saying PoAP would be too biased. Crypto is the tool that makes the most sense. Let's say that you are a creator and you're in a hypothetical scenario where you can decide which qualities you want to have as if you were building your own character. Um, I think for a creator, an extremely good quality they would love to have is being good looking. If you ask me, uh, 
an ugly looking creator that's not too charming, that doesn't know how to speak to the camera, that doesn't have much to say, mm -hmm. but understands crypto, it's highly likely more powerful than a good looking, sympathetic person that knows how to speak to the camera, but that mm -hmm. doesn't use crypto. Because crypto aligns the incentive so well and it, it opens so many primitives and so many applications on top of it that that's the main skill. And of course, of course, POAP is one of the most obvious cases because um, it's such an easy to use tool and it's such an easy to understand thing. Um, prior to POAP, creators were using ERC20 a lot and they are still using ERC20 tokens a lot, but they are just too hard. And it's unrealistic to, to expect non-tech consumers to engage with, an, with a content creator through ERC20 tokens. You can't expect them to learn how to use MetaMask, to learn how to trade, to learn how to get into Uniswap, much less to spend hundreds of dollars on gas fees. So things like POAP, and I don't want to like, like to bank so much about POAP, but POAP doesn't cost any money. There's no safety risk. There's no way that you can be hacked by getting a POAP. And not because I said so, someone is going to be hacked somehow, but Technically, POAP doesn't do anything financial unless you are a power user, but let's say that you are not. Um, anyone can mint a POAP. It has already a deep appeal into existing collectors. Like we may have, it's impossible to measure it, but the retention rate of POAP collectors is as high as, it's can, as high as it can be. When someone becomes a POAP collector, and that happens once they have a couple POAPs, they are a collector forever, even yeah. if they aren't getting more POAPs because POAPs have a serial number and one get attached to the serial number of the POAP and to the event where I got them. And something we say when we onboard new people into POAP, you better pay attention to this time because this is like your first kiss. There won't be another one. This is going to be your first POAP forever. So you better, you better enjoy this and you better be, be aware of what's going on. And having such a power tool as a creator, it it's really makes everything much easier. Like I yeah. think creators have a much stronger shot at launch. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And, you know, some creators, like there's one creator that I worked with called Daniel Allen. Okay, he's uh, he's like a top voice in the music NFT world. He's in the process of releasing his EP. He's doing it a song at a time. One thing, he came over to my place. We set up a landing page for basically people who basically listen or share or contribute somehow socially to his song to promote and to bring out and to, to kind of distribute will receive a POAP proving that they did that. And we set up that landing page for them to kind of prove the link that they submitted that then would then send them a POAP as a thank you, right? And kind of verify that they, they did that. We set up the graphic. We did everything. What a cool way to kind of incentivize and to keep a creator and his audience engaged because it's like a it's like you give me, I give you kind of thing, right? It is reciprocal, which yeah. is something that in the creator economy we don't have much. Mm -hmm. Normally in the creator economy, it's one to many, and there's no way as as creators get more popular, it is it is really hard to communicate with the audience in a minim, in a meaningful way, sustainably, without becoming a slave of your community. While if you started giving out POAPs in your early presentations and then you have built a following, you can distinguish those that were loyal, 
those that were those that had followed you when you were on tour across the estate. And it creates ways of rewarding those interactions that couldn't exist before. Because even let's say that you were an immersion artist and you started playing for 20 people and you kind mm -hmm. of remember the faces. When you are playing for a million, it's little impossible to remember the 20 faces that were there when you were just an immersion band. And with a concept like POAP, if you were giving POAPs to the first 20 people that went to your show, then you can make them VIP guests in everything you built because they were there when you want it. And by that time, you're likely friends. And this happens at every scale in every niche you can imagine. Although this show is focused on creators, this happens with, for example, physicians. Mm -hmm. There are uh, researchers in, in science, like in AIDS and vaccines and such, that keep, give POAPs to other fellow peers because they want to celebrate the time where they were researching a new virus. Mm. My point here being this primitive of distributing POAPs to people that engage meaningfully, it transcends culture. It has a myriad of applications that we can't imagine. It's like if you were pitching the internet in the 70s or if you were pitching blockchains in the early 2010s, you couldn't really present accurately everything you can build with the internet or with the blockchain. You could say there will be communication over the internet, there will be media, there will be entertainment, business, but you couldn't say that there's going to be Uber or gaming, mm -hmm. or maybe you could. It's the same with POAP. You can say that POAP is a great tool for musicians, it's a great tool for corporations, it's a great tool for collectors, but you cannot enumerate all the values because the primitive, it's so flexible and powerful that most of the, the use cases, the things POAP will be doing in 10 years, we cannot imagine. Yeah. You know, the, the first like mainstream like example that comes to mind that reflects the resemblance of collecting a POAP is I saw uh, this artist called Jack Harlow. Okay. He's one of the top, one of the top mu musical artists, rappers uh, in the game right now made songs with Lil Nas X, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, okay? There was a video that was trending, uh, I think last week, two weeks ago, that basically he went back to perform at his hometown where he had his first live show. And in that crowd, he had like 20, 30 people watching the show and he gave out merch, okay? That merch symbolized that you were there, that you got that merch. Few years later, he came back to perform again, right? The same guy who picked up one of the shirts was holding it in the back, proving that he was there Jack Harlow shouted him out. Thank you for being there. That's what a, that's like. That's a use case of a pull up, right? For anybody it's that's really not, fun, but yeah. you get how shallow it is in tech mm -hmm. because anyone could do a counterfeit merch, right? But you cannot do a counterfeit pull up. Yep. And there are some things that can only happen when you have this reliable guarantee that there cannot be counterfeits like digital art and NFTs. Beeple was an artist for like nine years before he sold a single NFT mm -hmm. and he was just posting on Instagram. And only when the masses had discovered that you could do reliable, authentic digital items, it's that they started becoming valuable. So it's the same thing. Um, artists had been giving unique merch or memories since they exist. But 
the disruption happens when you can have perfect provenance, perfect indisputable authenticity, and this set of tools that then you can use for building on top. So I, lo I love your example. Just lay, let's make it clear that we are after much greater right, right. than pulling up a, an old t-shirt. 100%. The only reason I bring that up is because a lot of people that I've been talking to, that I'm sending the podcast to, they are musicians, they're creators, they're artists, right? And trying to put it like a real world example to what a digital example kind of mimics and then bridging it from there brings like a surface level of understanding if you haven't collected a po-op already. You know what? One thing I want, I want to pivot to is you guys are one of the most like used social applications, consumer applications in crypto. Uh, I have a ton of po-ops that I've collected from conferences. I give out po-ops on the show. What do you imagine po-op becoming in like two years, three years, four years, five years, 10 years? What do you kind of see that vision? I know we talked about it briefly, like I don't know what it's going to become. This data, this element of collecting, this element of, of making authenticity and, and, and bringing sh shit on chain, right? Like there's a, there's, a, there's a level of value to that. But what do you imagine it kind of becoming or what could you see it becoming? Um, this is a huge challenge for us because there's such cool shit that you could be doing with POA that we could be doing with POA that it is hard to make a decision because we have limited resources like our time and our team's time. So we have thought a lot about what's the best usage of our resources to make POAP the best it can be. And just a little context um, about when I say we, uh, POAP is already a 50 people team. Um, so it's been a lonely journey for a while. Wow. Um, when I started, um, my co-founders left the project shortly after because we were on a deep bear market and, and they needed to sustain their lifestyle. And POAP not only didn't make money, it was a money drain. It was very lonely, but it's no longer. And every person in the POAP teams augments our capacity to build cool stuff significantly. So when I say we, it's good to put context. Um, okay. After exploring deeply the plenty of things uh, that could be built with POAP, we noticed that the cleverest thing to do for us is to build the lowest layer of the protocol to build the primitive, which is just mainly letting people mint POAPs and letting collectors collect POAPs. And that's the main thing we have to spend our time. Everything else is going to be built by the community. And it is being built by the community. For example, um, since you mentioned a lot the artists, the, the music industry, um, we had a great supporter that you know extremely well. He's a friend of this show, uh, who's Cooper Turley. And Cooper Turley has been piling musicians all over the country and, and explaining them why they should, they should use POAP, how to use it. Um, Cooper has been great. And now there are things happening like Dead Mouse has been using POAP for some shows. And if you bought the VIP ticket that came with the hotel room, or I don't remember exactly how it was, then you can join a raffle for some other benefit that only those could get. And we had no intervention of that. I mean, maybe we had a couple of calls with someone from the production company, but they pretty much came and used, it and used our technology. So this is the spirit. Mm. In POAP, we aren't building um, the, the applications. We are building the tech. 
Um, when I was in NFT NYC, I am approached by the head of Web3 or digital experiences or something like that of Coachella. Um, we can say that there is no much higher than Coachella in when it comes to music festivals in the US. And we had a nice meeting and he had plenty of ideas. And, and of course, we would love Pop Up to be in Coachella, but we had to tell him we are not a marketing agency. We don't do production. The applications, the way you use Pop Up, how you get your Pop Up, what does it have on the artwork, the benefits you can get, those things are going to be built by third parties. Um, the same way Vitalik has not built DeFi. Vitalik didn't do anything for DeFi besides doing everything he did for Ethereum. DeFi was built by Kane Warwick, by uh, uh, Stani of Aave, by Robert of Compound. And that's the same idea we have. Uh, we have you using POAP as a growth hack for your newsletter, which was something we haven't thought about at all. And it is happening. So, so this is how we yeah. think about the future. In the future, we believe um, on POAP being on a position of complete neutrality. This is really important. We need to give neutrality to all issuers so they can be sure that there aren't forces that could drive them out, which is mm -hmm. what happened with World Gardens. Like it happens to musicians these days. If you publish on Spotify or if you publish on certain network, you have to sign a contract, you have to split shares. And if someone doesn't like you, or if you do drugs and the corporation didn't like the drugs you were doing the way you were doing them, you are out. In POAP, we need to offer what Ethereum offers. Ethereum offers this credible neutrality where every person in the planet has the guarantee and it is fully backed by the whole community that they are free to use Ethereum. Mm -hmm. It has to be the same with Poab. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Poab is going to become, it already is. I mean, Poab is already a global scale social network. Now it is growing its penetration. It won't be able to penetrate its whole potential, which is pretty much every human, if there's someone in control that you have to be in good terms with. There are people I don't like. If I have the ability to get them out of Poab, then we won't we won't ever yeah. capture the whole market. Yeah. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. So you guys want to incentivize builders to build applications and use cases for POAP. Do you guys have like a grant program that you provide people? Do you, do you have any type of like infrastructure in place to incentivize building? Like if I'm building a consumer application and I want to create a display of, of proving where you've participated, et cetera, how do you guys um, come to the picture with that? This is fun because we don't have any infrastructure for grants. We don't have a grants program, but we've done maybe 50 grants. <laughs> so we do grants. We do grants a lot, all the time, like every week. We don't have a program. You have to show up on our Discord, explain what you want to build. And if the idea makes a little sense, you are getting funded. And we do grants of $1,000, of $5,000, of uh, $10,000, and of $100,000, depending on how meaningful it's what you want to build. Mm. And something that uh, we are very lucky and privileged in POAP is that we have much more capital than one we can allocate. Um, anyone that has a little idea and is willing to drive it forward and needs money gets funding from POAP, as mm. long as the idea is good for POAP. So we should have a program um, this year 
has been crazy on growth. Um, we've been like like I, the first time we've done a drop with the gallery B, we're really excited. Like we are working with gallery B. Shortly after, it became commonplace, and now we are like Adidas has done a pop-up drop, and and they we we didn't know. I mean, I had to really? buy my I I have an Adidas pop-up, and I had to buy it on the open market. Wow. I mean, of course, we take POAP very seriously. There's no way for me to get a privileged power. But the point here being, we've been growing so fast and we have been hitting milestone after milestone so quickly that we are lacking lots of infrastructures like a proper grants program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. One thing I, I, I want to talk about, uh, because you guys are growing so fast, because you're hitting milestones, because your brand is like one of the most recognizable brands in crypto, you did something super ballsy online, like, like I mind you, things every day. I, I know, know I know, but about. but it was to the point where I made you like the savage of the week in Mint's newsletter because you put a crazy bid uh, on a punk. Okay, it was a, it was a. <laughs> that happened. Yeah, that, happened. <laughs> that did happen. What do you want to know about that? I want to know what the hell were you thinking? Okay, why would you do that? Despite it creating one of the craziest PR events online, okay, um, the amount of exposure. A, it wasn't anything about PR. Um, I know it wasn't. That was just like the, the 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 result of it, right? Why did you do it? What's the story behind that? And for those who don't know, give us context about what the bid was, how much it was for, and then your thought process behind doing that. Um, in the NFT communities, there's huge traffic of influence. There are influencers who have the ability to drive markets and buyers and sellers and do things. And there is an influencer who's quite unique. I would say he's really one of a kind, and I can't think of anyone with his integrity. And this influencer is called Richard, Richard with an E, like Richard, but with an E, Richard. And I've been following this guy for a long time because of his integrity. You could see that Richard was different than almost every other. He, he wasn't motivated by money. He had very deep insights. He was highly technical, like the guy is a software developer. He's been in the industry for long. Um, has he been in this show? Has he? Adam? Um, well, I don't know whether he's been in this show, um, but, but he, he's really a top influencer. Um, he tweets a lot. And one morning he tweeted something like, I am so, I don't remember exactly what he said. Um, he said something that his profile picture, which was a crypto punk that somewhat looked like him, um, was so important in his well-being, in his personality, in everything about his life, that he wasn't ever going to sell it. Um, that, that it was more important than any amount of money. And because he's an influencer, an influencer and he gets lots of traffic, um, it doesn't take long, more like it takes a couple of minutes until someone comments and says, uh, Richard, everyone has a price. And, and for the right amount of money, you will sell your punk. And I was reading through that the next day after it was posted. And I am like, let's try this out. And let's see whether... It's true that everyone has a price or not. And let's see what that price is. 
Um, so I, I think, and, and I'm making this shorter because actually it took me a while to make the decision. Um, but I decided that I'm going to try it out. Um, so I place uh, a, a bid for over 2,000 Ether. It was like 2,400 Ether or so, which at the time was the largest um, bid anyone ever done uh, for a CryptoPunk, at least measured in dollar value. Maybe on Ether there were some larger earlier when Ether was less expensive. Um, and my idea was, was my reasoning was this. Um, if the guy doesn't get, doesn't accept the bid, I am proving a really important point, um, something I want to have proven, which is these little digital records, whether they are punks or POAPs or other PFPs or apes, can grow to immense amounts of money and value and people still won't sell. And that's something I like to establish with POAP because one responsibility we have in POAP, like in POAP, we are responsible for educating the community. For, for hundreds of thousands of people, POAPs are, they, they were or will be the first NFT they get. So it's important that they get educated right. And one thing we need to, to educate people about is these digital records can hold value to unprecedented levels. So the purpose of the bid was then, if he doesn't buy, if he doesn't sell, we are proving the point that a POAP could very well be worth $10 million anytime. If he accepts the bid, we have bought the most expensive punk ever who, we, who would have had a huge track record of being the punk of the guy that had huge integrity but decided to sell. So in either case, it was a win. And that's why we've done it. Um, I am very stingy with my money. If you see my lifestyle, you wouldn't believe that I made a $10 million. Like, like when I, sometimes I walk to not take a taxi, although because I don't like taxis, but it's not that I'm throw, I am throwing money away, much less companies' money. The point was pretty clear. Um, we either, we were either going to get one of the most important punks ever, or we were going to make a huge service to the whole NFT community, which is what happened. Amazing. Like I, I am disappointed when people say that maybe it was a marketing stand or that it was coordinated. I have a message. Let's see if I can show it on camera. I hope uh, Richard... Um, well, here's, here's, here's my point of view of coming from that angle, more so... I have a message from Richard that says, hey, Patricia, it's Richard, you're a wild man. And, and this is the first message I have. I never talked to him before. Yeah. Um, I hope I'm not doxing him. <laughs> and none of this was planned. I knew about his integrity because I followed him for a while. And I felt like I had to do it. And, and something important for people to understand the psychology behind this. Mm -hmm. Because media... I don't remember how you covered, but plenty of media outlets didn't cover this well because they say he got an offer, but the way CryptoPunks offers work in Larva Labs, because it wasn't in OpenSea or anywhere else in Larva Labs, the offer system is non-custodial, meaning that you have to put the money down and then the seller can either accept mm -hmm. or reject or not accept. So 
in a way, he has bought the punk for $9 million. Right. It's like he bought it because he had the money. It was to his name. And he still decided to get the punk. It's like every day you are holding a liquid asset uh, that you could liquidate any time, you are buying it. If you are holding Ether at $4,000, you are buying Ether at $4,000, otherwise go and sell it. So I, I sometimes when my friend, I have friends that hold different crypto assets and some are really controversial like Dogecoin and, and Shiba. Mm-hmm. And I am like, if I give you $1 million of fresh cash, like in banknotes, are you sinking them all in Doge? And I am not. If I have $1 million in cash, I'm doing whatever. Well, then go and sell your Doge because you could get dollars out of it immediately. And it is this magical crypto thing of non-custodial assets. He got the he got the money and decided that the punk was worth nine million dollars. If he didn't believe that the punk was worth nine million dollars, he would have taken the money. Yeah, makes sense. Look, the only reason why I said uh, it was an incredible PR stunt, even though it was not planned to be, was because it made so much noise, it brought so much attention, and like. Showed the world like, wow, what the hell is going on? Who's Patricio? What is Poa? <laughs> like, why, why would someone bid on this? And what, what's like the narrative behind this, right? And to have you on the show right now, yeah, that go ahead. That would be for the normies, but for the experts, it was this statement that the offer could have been on a Poa. There's literally no difference between yeah. a punk and a Poa, fundamentally, like spiritually wise. He got affectionate with a crypto punk. But there are people that are equally affectionate to certain pop-ups they have. Like there, one of our best pop-up drops was during the US Open earlier this year, the tennis tournament in New York. Mm-hmm. And if you are a fan of Djokovic and you have the pop-up of the day that Djokovic has done something, and I don't know what that can be because everything he could done that was great, he's done 10 times. So it's not like winning a Grand Slam, but whatever. Maybe someone offers you $10 million for that pop-up and you'd rather keep it because what means to you. So the effect wasn't only for the casual observer. It has helped the expert understand what POAP is building. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people ask as me or people from the POAP team, how are you guys going to monetize? And I am like, this is not a concern. POAP is creating so much value for collectors, for brands, for enterprises, for communities. That monetization is no it's no not concern at all. There are 20 different ways we could monetize. Even if we wanted to live out of donations, we are sure that plenty of POAP collectors would be happy to pledge money for POAP to keep existing and mm. um, because of how much value it creates. And this value eventually translates to dollar sign. And the more affectionate people are with their POAPs, the more valuable they will be for them and the more keen they will be on funding our existence. You have such a narrowed, like strategic, like straight cutter vision. We are not fooling around. I know. I know you're not. I know you're not. But it's, it's, you know, we haven't had a moment. We've talked a lot, you and I, but to hear you kind of like speak this and like define the path and to kind of like set it forth as a founder makes me even more excited about what you guys are doing uh, and, and everything that's going on. And, and you were pretty excited before. Yeah, I know I was. I know I was. And, and like, 
Yeah, I, I, I'm super impressed, you know, like doing Mint and, and Pop has been a, a very like a backbone despite you guys like supporting us, you know, and like full disclosure, yes, you are a sponsor, but even if you weren't a sponsor, I'd still be using Poops and I'd still be having you on the show. And um, that's, that's what happened a lot. Sometimes people say, how much have you paid for the US Open to use Poop? How much have you paid for the Adidas partnership? Like, do you do revenue sharing? And it's like every person that ever has dropped a Poop has done it on their own interest. We never, we never told anyone to use POAP. We didn't tell you to use POAP even when we were sponsoring. Yeah. Uh, although uh, maybe on the early days, like on the first 20 drops, I was pretty annoying with organizers so they would, they would have POAP. Uh, but no, it's important to make this, this distinction. Yeah. Um, there are plenty of NFT drops these days that the consumer cannot tell exactly what the driving forces are behind those drops. Uh, you can tell POAP doesn't have a commercial business development department. We don't have anyone in business development. Yeah. Everything that ever happened to POAP, including, again, Gary B, the US Open, and, and plenty of other brands like that, they all came because they wanted to use a tech. The same way as Ethereum. We are, we are very aligned with Ethereum vision. The Ethereum Foundation has never done any outreach for getting people to use Ethereum. And when they tried, like Ethereum Executive Foundation, the Ethereum Enterprise Foundation, something like that, it didn't even work. People use Ethereum because it does things they want to do in life, because it's valuable for them. And it's the same for POAP, and that's our guiding light. When we have to make contentious decisions, even, for example, with Treasury, uh, we were given huge airdrops across our history for different reasons. And we are constantly thinking, what would Vitalik do? Um, it's not that we do what Vitalik wants. Um, he has helped us a lot to full disclosure as well. Like he has helped with ideas and, and, and endorsements eventually on Twitter. But it's like, what would someone like Vitalik would do on this situation? Because what, what makes Vitalik such a unique leader is that not only he's arguably the smartest man alive, he has a moral standard and a moral compass that I don't think anyone else has. So every time we need to make a decision and those decisions apply even to business, like do we reach out to this brand or not? We think what's a Ethereum compatible action for this? Mm -hmm. Interesting. What, what's one thing, Patricio, that you wish you had known that you've kind of learned along the way, but when you started POA? Like, uh, I made you... plenty of mistakes. Um, I know, I know. One, one of them, and I'm still disappointed when I talk about it, it's how stingy I was in the early days. Mm. Um, we launched in 2019, and for the first year, I was running POAB on a shoestring budget, and we got huge brands coming to us, like, like even Bank of America, and we were like, these are your options. You go into GitHub, and you learn how to use POAP and you serve yourself or you don't use POAP. And I was like, if I was less fundamentalist and more pragmatic and hired someone to handle those relationships, adoption would have happened much earlier because like the Bank of America team came to POAP in March, 2020. And, and there were others earlier and, and some sport franchises and I was really focused on, on how I was and this spiritual decision like, I have this mantra 
of Poab doesn't do this dev. And I was like, I should have done this dev and everything would have been much easier. Interesting. So, so yeah, guys, don't, don't be, uh, <laughs> this, this happens because I was a tech person and it happens to tech people all the time that we believe that tech is what matters. And that's not true. What matters is sales. If you have a good sales team and a crappy product, it's likely that you survive. If you have a great product, but you don't have sales teams, you probably won't go anywhere. I mean, there are exceptions for everything, but my point here being something I regret, a huge mistake I've done and a lesson learned. Um, for building consumer products, you have to follow the consumer product playbook. And that implies lots of top-down uh, customer acquisition. Mm. I think that's a, I think it's a perfect place to leave to leave off. Uh, before I let you go, where can we find you? Where can we find Poap? Shill away. Tell me more. Um, our main communication channel is Twitter. Uh, so so if you can do only one thing, uh, follow Poap XYC on Twitter. Um, if you want to do two things, you can also follow my account, which is worth alter my last name, but I barely tweet. Um, if you are a passionate Poap collector, um, be aware that we are aggressively hiring community members, people that understand POAP, that love POAP for multiple positions, not only technical, but for running local POAP offices. Like we are opening an office in Paris, in France, and like that, we need offices in Asia, in Australia, across several cities in the US. Any passionate POAP collector, please stay around us. Let us know that you love our product and you would like to make it better because we need you. Amazing. Thank you so much, man. Uh, I, I, we got to do this again in like another year or so and see where the growth has been. It's probably going to be even more exponential in six months, but uh, thank you so much. Uh, it's been my pleasure. And thank you for educating the community. POA will only become this global scale checking based social network that we dream of only after a collective effort of the whole industry. It's not going to be because we made it. It's people like you, like Cooper, like even Stani from Aave, all using POAP well, creating exciting experiences. It's how this is going to happen. So thank you very much for promoting POAP the way you do. Of course, man. Thank you. We'll talk soon.